A candid conversation on systemic racism, white privilege, and diversity and inclusion coming up on the next episode of Good Morning Communicators, and it starts right now. I am beyond proud and honored to be the host of this podcast here today. We are discussing diversity and inclusion and basically going from action to anti-racism and discussing with three of the most unbelievable women in public relations that I think that I personally have had the honor of meeting. We have with us today Shanika Flynn, Gail Saunders, and Jared Terry. And I want to talk just a second about these wonderful women. Shanika Flynn is the chair, excuse me, chairwoman of Central Ohio PRSA Diversity, Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Gail Saunders, APR, she is a former PRSA Central Ohio board member and the co-founder of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. And along with Jaron Terry have done a great job on this, this committee because Jaron Terry is the other co-founder of Central Ohio PRSA Diversity and Inclusion Committee. She's an APR, she's also a fellow PRSA, and she's one of the past co-P, or excuse me, Central Ohio PRSA presidents. Ladies, that was a mouthful, but I am so honored to have you here this evening on our podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Um, thank you so much. Well, truly and honestly, the the it's it's an honor and a privilege. And I wanna I wanna get started here, and I'm gonna get right into it. Gail, tell me, how do you go from intent to impact when it comes to dealing with um, you know with racism today? Well, Mike, thank you again. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, We're very honored to be part of your podcast tonight. And so when you talk about going from intent to impact, that is really a mouthful. Um, And so we really have to think about our actions and what we do to impact change. And so, um, you know, uh, this country has been dealing with racism for over 400 years. We all know that's no, that's, that's not a secret. We know that. Um, and so changing the dynamics is going to take time. We've been, um, there has been much progress made in this area, but you know, um, the recent events uh, that have happened in this country just have raised racism's ugly head. And so moving from intent to impact first starts with an introspective view of who you are and what you're feeling and how you interact. So we all, each of us, black, white, or as my mother used to say, pink or purple, (laughs) we have to look at ourselves inwardly to see what it is that we do on a daily basis in our personal lives, in our professional lives, uh, in our social lives, and how are we moving about, how are we engaging people and engaging with people, how are we interacting at work, and if we're in leadership roles, what policies and practices are we responsible for, and are we really looking at what we're doing to impact change? Are we hiring people who only look like us, or are we really focused on broadening that scope to hire people who not only look who don't look like us, but also who don't have the same experiences as us. And so um, are we doing that? Are we intentional about it? Because when we are intentional about those things, that drives the impact. We know that um, businesses are much stronger. They uh, statistics show that they bring in more revenue. They are more successful. They are more impactful when those companies and organizations are are deliberate about diversity and inclusion. And I think Shanika can really talk about that diversity and inclusion part because you've got to have both to make it work. So I'll pause there. I'm going to, if that's okay, Shanika, if I can toss the ball to you about that diversity and inclusion and even talk about 
how that shows up and what that means when it comes from intent to impact. Well, thank you, Gail. With regard to diversity and inclusion and um, how it lends to impact, with regard to diversity, your companies should reflect your community. That means your staff members, you have diverse staff members within all companies. Um, you are reflecting, your staff members should reflect the company or the, or the cities in which you live, the communities in which you live. They are diverse. So you have diverse staff members and then you have inclusion, actively and proactively being inclusive in your work within your teams, within the um, different departments, and therefore throughout your culture, you should be inclusive in everything that you do and um, incorporating different viewpoints, different perspectives, different ideas that are different from you and what you think. That's actually how you come up with the best ideas, the best tactics, the best products and services. But you have diverse staff members, you have um, inclusivity, and with that, that lends to the impact that you're making from an internal perspective, but it also, um, it, it also moves externally because of the customers that you are targeting or you're trying to reach, you're trying to educate, um, you're trying to have them either buy your products or services or understand what products and services you offer. Um, all of the diversity and inclusion that's coming internally is going to be external as well. And that's how you can make an impact in the community. So I want to talk about for a second here, Gail, I want to go back to one of the statements you made because I thought it was very interesting. And I think a lot of times a lot of business owners, especially white old school CEOs that don't understand that diverse, the, the more diverse you are and the more inclusive you are, it actually leads to greater, greater sales and greater revenue in your business. Elaborate on that for a little bit. That statistic really stands out to me. So thank you for that question. Absolutely, I'll be happy to share. Um, a recent uh, study by Deloitte um, really talks about how the business impact of diversity and inclusion and how that really does make a company better overall. When you think about the fact that two time, that companies who are very committed to diversity and inclusion, they are two times more likely to meet or exceed financial targets. Two times more likely to meet or exceed financial targets. I mean, you think about innovation, you know, that is the buzz uh, today. When you think about innovation and what that means when you have diverse, a diverse workforce, those companies who are committed to diversity and inclusion, and I keep saying inclusion because it, it is about moving people up through management and having your um, staff reflect diversity from the front mm -hmm. lines to the CEO, they are six times more likely to be innovative, six times more likely to anticipate change and listen to this and respond effectively. So when you think about that, when you think about some of the issues that some of the financial industry companies have had over, over the last year, year and a half, and their lack of diversity, which created big, big issues for them uh, in their marketing strategy. When you have a diverse staff, you are six times more likely to anticipate change and respond effectively. And finally, 30%, 30% higher in revenue generated per employee. So we cannot hide behind the fact that companies are saying, well, it costs too much for me to uh, look for diverse employees. Not true. Because if you have a diverse work staff, you're going to have 30% higher in revenue generated per employee. So the stats speak for themselves. It was a recent Deloitte uh, research. And so uh, that's why it matters. And it really does matter to your bottom line. Shanika, I, I want to go along those lines that, that Gail was just speaking of here. You know, she mentions a little bit ago about, you know, we've dealt with systemic racism for over 400 years. And Gail reads off statistics like that, that revenue is 30% higher. Why are we still stuck in this uh, stone age? Why are we not diverse and inclusive in the country, in the world right now? What, what, why? Why are we having this issue? Well, I think one of the reasons is because you have to take a look at 
um, top management and their perspectives and how the companies are ran. Everything comes from the top down. And with regard to the person who is running the companies, and then you take your executive staff or your executive teams, everything is ran based on how they perceive things. They incorporate their implicit biases and they don't even realize it. That penetrates throughout the entire company. So how the company is ran is going to reflect the leader's perspective. So if they have implicit biases, if they are not uh, culturally aware, if they aren't really um, inclusive, they don't really care about diversity, that is why a lot of companies haven't, are still in the Stone Age. Um, and they don't recognize, too, within their own team members or within their own companies how diversity and inclusion impacts their employees. When you think about it, if you have staff members even who um, do not feel that they are included or the company is not inclusive, think about how that's going to not just impact your staff members, but it, how it impacts their productivity and their results. If you're not happy at your job, if you don't feel in, valued or respected or heard, listened to, appreciated, um, your thoughts aren't taken into consideration, your ideas aren't implemented, it's going to end up impacting a person's feelings and their morale and their productivity and therefore their results. And hence, that's going to impact the bottom line of companies. But many leaders are unaware of that because they still are in that dark age, for lack of better words, and they're running the companies that way. So they really need to increase their own awareness and be aware of their own implicit biases and work to overcome them from the leadership perspective. And then it trickles down throughout the entire company to be a new culture. So how do we, I want to ask, and I'll open this question to all three of you. How do we begin to remedy this situation? Well, let me go back for a second here because I want our listeners to understand how have we gotten to where we are today? And we, we, we are noticing now statues are coming down. Changes are being made. How are we? Why now has it become that we're, we're taking the steps now to start the conversation and start um, making these changes? Can I jump in real quick? I'll just yeah, say, of course. That it seems to me that rather than ask how we got here, the better question might be where do we go from here? Well, I'm going to get there. I was trying to paint a whole story for everyone. I want to go well, and get to that point. The but, arc of the story, the arc of the story is more than 400 years. And so one of the resources that Gail suggested we all should be uh, familiar with is the documentary by Ava DuVernay called 13th. And it's about the 13th amendment. So the, how we got here is a huge piece of education sure. that we did not get in high school and we did not get in college. And so we, as white people, are responsible for educating ourselves. So we might say, oh, my ancestors didn't own slaves. Okay, so it's not my fault. However, it is my responsibility to do what I can to get us from where we were to where we go from here. And so that middle point of the where are we now is George Floyd's death. Woke everybody up, opened eyes across the country to the reality of police brutality. And why is that? It's because of racism. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how we got where we are. And I wanted to say something about the impact and the intent sure. um, as well. So when we think about, um, you know, suppose we're playing Frisbee with a friend and we um, accidentally whack them in the head. The intent was not to hurt that person, but the impact was quite painful. And so it's kind of the same thing when we, I'll say misspeak, but it's not really misspeaking if we're using the language that we grew up with in our all-white schools, our all-white families, our all-white 
you know, colleges, and we say something that hurts a person of color, it's, it's, you know, we might say, oh, I didn't mean to hit you in the face with that Frisbee. Therefore, I'm not going to apologize for it because you might be over there hurting with a bloody nose, but guess what? I didn't do it on purpose. That's got to change. So we need to think about our in intent. Mm -hmm. And if our intent is based on that ignorance, I didn't mean to, I didn't know any better, that's where, again, we are responsible for getting that education for ourselves. Amen. Uh, Gail, I, I want to ask, I'm sorry, go ahead. Shanika, go ahead. I'm sorry. May, no, I, may I make a quick comment to yeah. um, your question? Um, with regard to how we got here, and Jaron was completely right, it, it, it is a matter of education. Um, so I'm not going to speak on that, but I would like to add to that because we have to recognize where we are today as a reflection of where we were years ago. Um, all of this obviously started with slavery. You have to think about when there were slaves, masters owned the slaves, how they viewed black people, what their perceptions were of black people, how they treated black people. And then when you move forward and you think about when slaves were freed, although they were actually free, white people's perspectives of blacks had not changed. So their values and their thoughts um, were the same. There were biases. They were very overt with slavery. And then when people became freed slaves, they were still overt racism, uh, overt negative perceptions and thoughts um, of black people. Lost. When you think about how it has continued from generation to generation, that is actually how we are here today. We're in the same place that we were a long time ago. The difference is we just have freed slaves, but everyone's thoughts and values and perspectives about black people is the same. It's called implicit biases. It's called explicit biases. They are biases that are ingrained in us and taught, I'm sorry, not ingrained. They are taught to us as children and it's continued from generation to generation. With regard to systemic racism, laws have changed, but laws still reflect um, white values, and we still have white privilege where um, laws and everything with regard to our society is based on white perspectives, and therefore, that's what's causing us to be where we are today. It's always been here. It's just gone from generation to generation in a different form. I want to ask Jaron the next question here. And Jaron, if you could tell us just what is white privilege and how it relates to systemic racism? Um, thanks so much for that question, Mike. So what is white privilege and why is it so hard for white people to admit that we have it? So first of all, white privilege just basically means that all of the history, all of the laws all of the systems are set up for the benefit of white people. And just having white skin gives me the benefit of the doubt. If the police see me going maybe just a little too fast through the stop sign, they're, you know, they're going to give me a pass on that. Or if they do stop me, um, they understand. I didn't see it quite clearly whereas someone else might be um, hauled out of their car. White privilege came to my rescue when I was in the Bahamas and bought the sweetest little Christmas ornament at the shell market, the straw market it's called, and passed a counterfeit $10 bill to pay for it. And so my first thought was, oh, my God, my husband and I are going to be in a jail in the Bahamas. What's going to happen to our underage son? What is going to happen? What is, well, the uh, black lady who sold us the ornament simply, um, you know, after swiping it with her pen, simply said, this is not a good 10. Do you have another? Think about George Floyd. He went into a store and he passed a counterfeit $20 bill. My guess is he probably did not have a printing press in his basement rolling off $20 bills. Somebody passed him a bad bill, just like happened to me. But my white privilege 
in that place gave me the benefit of the doubt. So one of the ways to understand what white privilege is, is there's a a wonderful book that I really um, recommend. It's called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. There's some controversy around it. Some people think, well, because she's a white woman, you know, who is she to talk about racism and and white privilege? But um, what she recognizes is that some white people simply need to hear it from another white person. And it, they, otherwise, they close their ears. They don't want to admit it. So that's basically what white privilege is. It's um, invisible, insidious, systemic. Just a quick statement with regard to white privilege, because Jaron is completely on point. And I'd like to also make the point of um, with regard to white people, please understand that white privilege is shared by all white people. It does not matter if you're a wealthy white person or you can be a struggling white person. Um, It is shared by all white people. And what that means is basically white people have greater access to power and resources more so than black people. Once you understand that, then you can understand what white privilege is and why black people don't have the same privileges and opportunities. Exactly. In fact, Robin D'Angelo addresses that very point, Shanika, where um, the white fragility will cause a white person to say, well, not me. I um, grew up with parents who, you know, scraped together whatever they could. And I paid my own way through college and I bought my first house by, you know, scraping together uh, eating hamburgers instead of steaks, etc. Pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Well, guess what? If you don't have boots, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line right there. But um, it doesn't matter. So maybe you were a, a poor white person who really worked hard. You didn't have proverbial silver spoon in your mouth. Well, tell me what your what your hardship was like from the perspective of being white. Again, it would be different. It's a lot different. I agree with that 110%. And I think it goes back to a statement that I believe that Gail made at, at the event for, for PRSA that where she said that, Gail, I believe someone told you when you were 14 to either speak like you're black or you don't talk like you're black or you're talking like you're black. So that to me is what right, excuse me, what white privilege is because no one has ever said to me, well, you're, you're, you're talking like you're white, you know, or you don't talk like you're white now. Now, uh, candidly, yes. off, off, off topic. Thank you, for bringing, thank you for bringing that up, Mike. Um, I've been told actually, I speak Valley, you know, Ohio Valley, which is, <laughs> could be, yes, is, is, a, yes. is a pretty, it's like a cross between Southern redneck voice uh, and, and, and the Pittsburgh accent. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, elaborate on that for just a second. Sure. The comment was actually, you don't sound, you don't talk black. And so um, the community in which I was reared, it it wasn't very diverse. There were very few black folks, uh, even though it was a small little country town. But um, the reality is I talk just as my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, who are all black. And so... um, for some reason, people thought that was a compliment when they said that to me. And uh, even at that tender age of 14, I had to remind them that that's not a compliment. It's very insulting because um, I don't know what you mean by that. But the black people I know, this is how we sound. And so it's not an anomaly. Uh, it is a reality of just how we speak. So that was um just one instance that we could go on and on and on. Who knew about speaking how, English? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's speaking awesome. English. That's all it is. Yeah. Who knew yeah, that speaking English awesome. had two different kind of uh, two, two different meanings for people? That's also the perfect example of intent versus impact because they thought they were complimenting you. Mm-hmm. Great example, uh, Jaron. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, Mike, yes. Yeah. 
So as communicators, you know, we, we play a role in storytelling, in creating and driving brands and in how we show up via the images we select. We play huge roles in the work we do. How can we help shape the narrative in our own organizations, both internally and externally? Um, and I'll start well, with Shanika first. I, Sorry, yeah. Okay. Um, well, how we show up, um, when we think about uh, the images that we select with regard to um, our branding and marketing materials and things like that, well, one, we have to remind all team members throughout the entire agency or company or organization of how the internal staff reflects the diverse community in which we live. So therefore, um, our community is diverse. Therefore, our internal staff is diverse. And our narrative, from the company's perspective, our narrative, the story that we tell, the visuals and the graphics that we use should reflect that diversity. And, and if I may add to that, Please. Shanika is, is absolutely on point. Um, it, it, it's, it's making sure that the people who are around the table making those decisions, it's a diverse staff um, because oftentimes even language, some of the language and the words that we construct when we are building the speeches for our executives, when we are writing the news articles for our internal communications, when we are creating um, the, the commercials and the ads that Shanika mentioned, the content has to also be reflective of diverse content. And so um, if you don't have people around the table who understand that, who recognize that, who can help drive that and help protect you, company, organization, from making a blunder, that's a problem. And so it, it's, it's critical to have diverse people at the table. And that's across all spectrums from the race piece to the gender piece to the LGBTQ to all of the above. You've got to have the people at the table or you will end up making huge blunders as we've seen over and over again um, in, in different corporations over the last two years. I'll piggyback on that. Kind of goes back to what Shanika was talking about with diversity and inclusion. And so, um, one of the sayings that I uh, learned a couple of years ago in the National DNI uh, Committee is um, diversity is being invited to the dance, but inclusion is being invited to dance. In other words, diversity is checking off the box, got one having them sit at the table like a wallflower, but they don't really have much to do. They don't get meaningful projects to do. Their voice is not really listened to, so they're not heard if they do have something to add, or they don't feel comfortable speaking up and saying, hey, you're walking into it because they know that they'll be um, put down or they'll hit a white fragility nerve that will jangle everybody and they just really would rather avoid that. And so that's why that diversity and inclusion, that and inclusion piece is so important that Shanika was touching on earlier. And can I also say that based on what Gail and Jaron just talked about, um, understanding the importance of that's actually the first step because you do have to have diverse people at the table first. Once you have diverse people at the table and they're understanding diversity, they're inclusive, and it's being spread throughout the company or agency or organization, then everything you do will reflect that diversity, which goes back to when I was talking about um, making sure that the narrative or the story that you tell is diverse, the visuals that you use are diverse. If people aren't at the table to begin with, you're not going to be able to incorporate those kind of tactics with regard to how you tell your story or what the narrative is or what visuals you use that should reflect a diverse community. So that's really, really important with Gail and Jaron, what they were talking about. That's the first step Then everything else follows. I'd like to hear Shanika talk a little bit more about implicit bias versus explicit bias and mm -hmm. unconscious bias. 
And uh-huh. what can we do to figure out what our biases are? Oh, yes, absolutely. Amen. Well, so um, our unconscious biases, or rather implicit biases, uh, they're basically beliefs or prejudice that, that we have against an individual or a group of people um, based on their identity. For instance, race. Our conscious biases or, or explicit biases are actually our actions that we are consciously aware of that reflect our prejudices and our beliefs. Um, with regard to um, when you're conscious of your biases, you're doing what you're doing on purpose. So it's a matter of having to be able to kindly and respectfully confront the person who is actually being overt with their biases. But with regard to implicit biases, when you're unaware of them, your unconscious biases are coming out, you have to, one, focus on you and your own self, be aware of what biases you may have. And you can do that by starting to recognize how you feel when you come across different situations or different people or conversations that you're having with people when things, when conversations are brought up or topics that make you uncomfortable. Think about how you feel. If you're uncomfortable, if you don't like, if you get angry or whatever the case is, be conscious of how you're feeling and then ask yourself why you're feeling that way. Because again, they were brought to us when we were children. And so we are taught those, whether they're implicit or explicit, they were taught to us, recognize where it comes from, and then actually um, make actions or be proactive in trying to overcome them. So put yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable or that you don't like. If you are uncomfortable with Black people who wear hoods, literally go and start having a conversation. Talk to some Black person with a hood on and you will recognize they're exactly just like you and they will converse with you. And that may ease some of your feelings, but not just focusing on your own self. Also make your staff and your team members, um, your executives aware of their own biases. Ask them questions. If you don't want to overtly say, this isn't a bias that seems to be coming out. Ask them questions. Why do you say that? Why do you feel that way? Do you feel uncomfortable? It seems this way. And allow them to express themselves. Then you can have a conversation where you're actually educating them as opposed to pointing a finger um, at them so that they can be aware of their own biases. Um, and then they can work on that. You do that throughout your entire organization and you will have one step forward with regard to implicit and explicit biases in your actions. I'd like to say something else um, regarding explicit bias. When, when I see that in another person like Uncle Joe at the Thanksgiving dinner table, who's got a really good joke about black people, it is have my those. responsibility to yeah. speak up and not say, Uncle Joe, you're a racist, because that's not going to get anywhere. <laughs> it's to actually confront that. And I think that we as professionals have the opportunity and the responsibility for calling attention to one another yeah. um, if we hear something that is like, mm, that doesn't quite, that's not quite how you wanted to phrase that, is it? Or we see, for example, someone's post that you mentioned earlier, Mike, you wanted to mention that you might now, get called out on. Now that I see an opening, uh, let, let's talk about that for a second there, because that is a real world example of implicit bias and um, borderline racism uh, in my life that uh, Gail was. And, and Gail, I don't say this just I don't say, hey, you know, thank you. I mean this when I say this, reaching out to me a few weeks ago and having this conversation was one of those eye-opener, life-changing moments that you, you know, when you have them and they're sort of few and far between in life. And when you have them, you hold on to them and you're thankful for them. And I'm going to let everybody in, our listeners in on a small story here. And I won't get too deep, but uh, I think it's important to note. Um, back when all of this happened with, with George Floyd, um, I was devastated by the um, murder that happened. And I do call it a murder because it was. Um, and 
we had in our office buildings uh, being downtown. I'm working in the commercial in the commercial real estate sector here in Columbus, Ohio. We dealt firsthand with all of the um, you know aggressive protest or the protest period. I don't want to say aggressive protest, the protest period uh, during that time period. Protesters oh, and looters are two different. They're absolutely right. I don't want to ever call people looters and protesters. I'm, I'm just going to say the protest that was going on downtown. Um, I remember what happened was, is Nickelodeon, excuse me, a news story came out on Facebook talking about um, Paw Patrol being pulled off the air. And some people were up in arms because the main character, Chase, who, if you don't know Paw Patrol listeners, uh, Chase is the lead character uh, of the show. I have a three-year-old nephew that watches it religiously. And it's a cartoon. It is a cartoon. It is. And obviously with the, the height of everything that had been going on, I, I saw that and I, I made the post and the exact phrase was, okay, I think we're getting a little ridiculous by eliminating Paw Patrol from television. And some friends of mine on Facebook, and I will say they were what they are white, not were, they are white, started joking about looting and rioting a target. And if Paw Patrol's pulled, then, you know, we're going to go steal all the Paw Patrol toys. And I joke back. I will admit that I absolutely joke back. And I went on in the conversation, uh, laughing and carrying on and liking and loving and supporting all the converse, the, the posts that were up there. It was Gail that came to me via private message. And, I, and Gail, I am thankful that you did it that way because it probably could have been bad and we would have all it just best, best said privately. Who brought to my attention that the reason why, you know, gave me the reasons why uh, people were protesting Chase being a cop and, you know, maybe to pull back um, the show off of television. Gail and I had a conversation for about a half hour uh, after she had sent me the post and talked about how she had done some research on my company that I work for as we were, when we were celebrating what we called the 30 days, 30 employees. Some of our employees are, are, are black and had um, non-traditional executive positions, right? Gail, is that how, is that how you, yes. um, the ones we had featured had worked in maintenance positions and, um, secretarial positions. And she did bring that to my attention. And after we had talked, I actually had went home and truth be told, I actually cried to my wife because this, this really hit me pretty hard because it's kind of like one of, it's one of those eye opening moments where you don't think that you're being implicitly biased, Shanika, until someone tells you, you are being implicitly biased. And the things that you are saying can affect those around you. And and I don't know that. I, I didn't know that. What I thought was okay. And it was okay to say that. I didn't think I was calling anybody a derogatory term. You know, I wasn't calling a homosexual the F word or a black person the N word or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Because to me, that's all I know is being derogatory. Right. I don't know that it could go further as implicit bias. Mm-hmm. That's, your, that's your realm. And it really opened my eyes. Since that moment, this was on, I believe it was June the 5th, if I'm not mistaken. Since then, I have had a meeting with the owner of my company who came to me the next day actually and said, I want to start a program where we're going to give 15% off to lawyers, lobbyists, uh, and other professions around the city to bring their office suites to, to our office buildings. And I said, David, I want to go a step further. I think we have a real opportunity here to bring minority and non-traditional um, uh, people, LGBTQ uh, businesses into our office suites. And we can stop alienating these groups who make up lawyers, who make up <laughs> accountants, who, who make up marketers, who make up public relations professionals, uh, lobbyists. You know, our, our biggest demographic in our office buildings are lawyers, lobbyists, and accountants. You know, that's it that let's call it, and we're going to roll this out here in the next couple of weeks. We're going to call it, um, you know, it's, it's going to be the minority community building special where we're giving 15% off minority businesses that bring their uh, office suites into our buildings. Wow. Um, wow. It is 
because Gail, and this this goes to you, and, and I hope you take take this more of a take this as more of an apology than me saying I'm sorry, because I think this is where you realize me personally, this is where I think the game is being changed is here. When when someone says that you spoke to them, you talked to them, and they decided that, hey, you know, I get it. This okay, I'm wrong. But not only that, I'm gonna go a step further to try to rectify this. And that is where I think we as Caucasians as white people, that's where I think we need to continue to go forward. And I've rambled a lot, but I wanted to share that story because the question that I want to ask all three of you is, you know, how do you personally handle a misstep when someone makes an inappropriate comment like mine, makes a remark as a joke like mine, or simply has no idea what he or she is saying has real racial implications or overtones. What can we do in our roles as communicator, communication leaders? Well, if I may start, Mike, by saying kudos to you. That's, that's number one. Um, because I, I thought I knew your heart when I reached out to you. I, you know, I, I know you some, but I said, I, I, that doesn't, I don't think Mike realizes what he has done. Obviously, I did. And um, and I, I know what Mike has done in communication. So people don't know what they don't know. And so we have to, we, people of color, people who are moving forward this anti-racist work, people of color and beyond, we have to be willing to show a little grace and reach out to people and and let them know where they have misstepped. And then it's up to the person to receive it well or not. But we are obligated to reach out. I take that to my heart. We are obligated to reach out because that's the only way we're going to change the dynamic. And so look at what happened. Share that with you. We had a phenomenal conversation oh, I about it, was great. it. Yeah. Um, I, I I know that your intent when you were highlighting and your company's intent when you were highlighting as black people, mm-hmm. you were doing that celebrating what they do. Mm-hmm. It was a celebration to you. Sure. You didn't think about, oh, we have a dearth of leadership in, in key leadership roles. We have a dearth of diversity in key leadership leadership roles. You weren't thinking that. You were celebrating people. So for you and your CEO to take some immediate action, Mm -hmm. that's how we're going to change this. Mm -hmm. That's how we're going to change it. We have to act. We talked, uh, Jaron and um, Shanika and I talked a couple of weeks ago now about uh, moving from the action statement to real policy change, sure. you demonstrated that. That's what you did. That's what you did. So kudos to you, and I applaud you and your company. Well, this is all you. You, you. It wouldn't have uh, happened no. if it weren't for you to say something. You know. So let's just make that very, very clear. And I, no, and I, I cannot make this clear, thank you enough. <laughs> I, I want really to make can't. this clear. <laughs> people have been talking, and we've been bringing things to people's attention. I'm going to say it again for over 400 years. The only way it changes is if people who are in power make the change. So, yes, we brought it to your attention, but the real work is when you make the change. So I, 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 I applaud you and your company, and I, I know you're going to continue to do great, great things in changing your policies and your practices and your culture. It's so a, it's, thank you for that. we got a long ways to go yet, but... And Gail, is that an example of uh, reparation on a small scale or is that something different? I would say that's something different. Okay. Okay. And the reason I say that's something different, uh, when you look at reparations and how reparations have been um, rewarded to different um, ethnicities, religious groups, um, it's, it's different than changing your policies to move people in positions that they really should be in anyway. Okay. So, so that's, that's, there, there's a difference. Thanks. 
Mm-hmm. So, so ladies, how do we educate ourselves about the history of racism and why does that matter? Well, I'm sorry. Is there any way I can jump in before we answer that question? No, no, no. By all means, please. Okay. You had asked about um, how to handle a misstep, um, what we can do, you know, in our roles as communication leaders, how do we handle a misstep? And I really like to just respond by saying, honestly, for each individual, it just takes two steps. You can either, one, ask someone a question, you know, why did you say that? Why did you do that? Or what was your intent? What was your motivation behind that? So that they can actually have a moment to think about what they said and what their intentions were. They're probably going to feel uncomfortable when they recognize it. So you can ask them a question so that they won't be uncomfortable, but they can recognize their actions or the impact of their words and why they even said it in the first place makes them aware that they may have some biases that they were unaware of. Mm-hmm. Or you could even turn the exact question or situation around on them. For instance, if you said, if they made a comment about a black person or whatnot, and you turned around to them and said, so if I said that about your mother or your child, how would you feel? Would you be upset? Would you be offended? Would you be hurt? How would that impact you? Then that allows them to put themselves in the shoes of the person that they were talking about or the group of people they were talking about. So either ask them a question or turn the scenario around on them. That's your first step. And then your second one is to simply after they respond, simply explain that what they said or what they did was racist and its significance. So if you tell someone that, you know, well, that was actually um, a bias, that was an overt bias, or you were stereotyping, or even that was a subtle form of discrimination, or, you know, that was a microaggression, and explain that to them so that they are aware of exactly what they did, what their comment or action was and its significance. Amen. That's all. Thank you. Absolutely. And that's actually a good segue and partial answer to Mike's last question. How do we educate ourselves? Because um, I think it's been two years already that the three of us were invited to come to the district uh, quick start program and do a program that we had built for our chapter on overcoming and identifying and overcoming implicit bias. Very well received. In fact, our, our little committee here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, received honorable mention at the national level for our work, and that program was part of that. And that is a program we have on the shelf, still shiny. We keep it dusted off, and we are ready to uh, present that when the chapter is ready to receive it. Yes, ladies? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ready to go. Absolutely. Yes. And and I think uh, just to add to that conversation, we have to have the courage. We as communicators are at the table often, most of the time. We are called upon for our opinions, our thoughts, our leadership. So we have to have the courage, no matter where you sit, we have to have the courage to call things out. And so um, that is the only way that things change is when people call them out and when people take action. So I don't think it's okay anymore to sit and let those things ride. I just don't think it's okay anymore. Um, We all should be tired collectively as black and white people together. We should all be tired. It makes no sense. It just makes no sense, especially if you want to talk about the bottom line and your CEO is focused on revenue. I gave you the the stats earlier. It makes no sense. So we need to stop it. And we have a role in helping to change it. I want to get everybody's final thoughts on implicit bias and systemic racism and how we can overcome it. Ibram Kendi who is the author of How How to Be an Anti-Racist, tells us it's no no longer good enough to say, I'm not a racist, because it's a binary. It's not a spectrum. It's not, I am a racist, I'm not a racist, I'm anti-racist. It's it's either you're a racist or you're anti-racist. There's no saying 
I'm not a racist. Those days are over. You're either anti-racist or you are not. You're right. You're right. Gail? That's a great way to close this, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that we hold the key. We, as in the people. And um, we have to have the institutional courage, the courage to be fierce uh, wherever we show up and standing firm on anti-racist behavior. We've got to stand firm on it. Um, as Jaron said, it's no longer cool to just say I'm not a racist. You got to be anti-racist. And so what that means is, for example, if, if, if I only have black people in my circle, that's a problem. I've got to, I, that's a problem. We need to broaden our circles and bring people in, people who don't think like us, who are not, uh, who don't look like us. We have to take the personal responsibility to open our own circles because that will also help educate us. And we have to educate ourselves. And, and I, I will say that white people have to educate yourselves. 13, um, several books. We have a whole list of resources for people to use that you can find on the uh, Central Ohio PRSA um, website, an entire uh, repository of resources to help educate yourself. And so that would be an opportunity. And then the biggest thing is have dialogue. If you, if you, have a question you're not sure about, then you need to um, call people who can help you with that. And I'll pass it over to Shanika. I would just quickly say, uh, please make a conscious effort to be attuned to your own biases and the culture within your organization. Acknowledge your biases, do research and proactively practice ways to overcome your biases, as well as proactively practice inclusion and belonging and then build awareness internally throughout your agency or your organization from the top down. Shanika, Gail, Jaron, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. This has been an awesome conversation. I can't thank you enough. And again, it is my honor and privilege uh, to have spoken with you here. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody take care and God bless. Folks, this has been Good Morning Communicators. For Shanika Finn, Jaron Terry, and Gail Saunders, my name is Michael Van Ness. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.